Okay, my name is Lawrence uh, with Two Rivers Quinelm. I'm absolutely honored to be here. Um, yeah. We're going to look at a scripture. Um, just because unlike Vaughn, I don't have much to say, but if I read really slowly, the scripture will really, you know, eat up the 15 minutes. Um, the other thing is, you know, there are folks in the room way more learned and smarter than I am, and you've been leading churches way longer than I have been. Um, it is an absolute privilege to be here. I'm going to ask that you just lean in for 15 more minutes or 13 more minutes, um, just because, yeah, just, just hang with me. Um, we're just going to go through this. You know, the question is, uh, how do I have more love for my neighbor? Like, you've got people around you and people in your workplace, people in your neighborhoods, wherever, um, and you actually don't even like them. And so, like, how do you obey this command to love your neighbor? Like, how do you, where does that come from? Um, and so, you know, you can't, just work it up, um, so you're kind of stuck. What are you going to do? And even the idea of loving your neighbor, it's a little scary, right? It's, it's like, well, what am I going to say, and what is this going to be like? Are they, are they going to think I'm really weird, like, uh, going and talking to them? Uh, like, it's really difficult. So what are you going to do? We're going to look at Luke 10, 25 to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is the most important question that anyone can ever ask um, in our churches, anyone can ever think about, because the fact is, this life on earth is not the whole thing. And so for someone to say, what must I do to inherit eternal life, that is a goldmine. That is awesome. Um, Jesus doesn't answer the question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he throws a question back, and the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, the lawyer gets it right. Two check marks. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So the lawyer just takes a right turn. Like, rather than being honest and saying, the reality is... I haven't loved God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength. And I don't even like my neighbors. Reality is. And so he says to try and justify himself, make himself righteous, to try and earn his way to God, he says, who is my neighbor? So really, he's just trying to shrink the people that he has to love. Hopefully, Jesus is going to tell him some good news in which he only has to love a couple of people. And he can do that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan... It's kind of like, you know, Vladimir Putin, like, walking his donkey down the road. And, you know, we think about this. Wow, Putin is going down the road, and uh, he's going to stop. Um, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Uh, Putin went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, 
Wow, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, um, sort of, you know, a couple of months' worth of salary, um, and gave, so a few hundred thousand rubles, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So we know the story. I mean, we've read it probably hundreds of times. And yet when Jesus says, go and do likewise, the most likely response that people have is, oh, okay, I've got to be like the Samaritan. I better go out, and I better uh, help the poor, and I better help the homeless, and I better feed someone, and I need to give people money, or I, there's you know, someone stranded on the side of the road. I better stop, because I feel like, okay, Jesus said, go and do this. But is that really what he's saying? Is he really telling us to go and do this? Well, yes, of course he is at one level, but what's the real context? A teacher of the law says, how do I inherit eternal life? And he says, well, love the Lord your God and go and serve. Go and help the, you know, your neighbor. Knowing full well, none of us are able to do it. You can't do it. You can't run and serve somebody and, and, and help them without your heart being changed. And even at the end, when Jesus says, go and do likewise, and we think, oh, I got to go and do this. And people in our churches, oh, we got to go and do this. But do they know Christ? So who are you? There are actually three things that I'm going to cover. Who are you in the story? How do I love my neighbor? And how, do I, how can I love my neighbor more? This first, the answer to this first question is, you know who you are? You're the guy on the road. That's who you are. That's who I was. You know, verse 30, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. You have to see you were stripped of your clothes. You were naked and ashamed like Adam and Eve because of your sin. Because there's a sin issue in your life, in my life. Before I found Christ, I was naked and ashamed, trying to cover up my sins, my flaws, and my issues. He was beat. He was beaten. We were straining under the guilt of our sins. We struggled with that weight of carrying our sins. And we were more than half dead. The Bible says, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and you are dead in your trespasses. You were more than half dead. You were spiritually dead. And until you see yourself as being the guy on the side of the road and know that you needed a savior, you needed that true neighbor, that ultimate neighbor to come and save you because you are helpless. Then, number two, how do I go and love my neighbor? And then our people can go and love their neighbors. I'm going to tell you a bit of my story on loving neighbors. So, um, oh, there go my notes. So, when I was in, in Ajax um, with City Gates, 
um, before we came out to Cornell. Thanks, man. You're a lifesaver. Oh, okay. <laughs> It'd be really funny if this is the fourth point uh, as my next point. Uh, yeah, you should have. Um, so before we, we moved to Cornell, I was in Ajax, middle-class suburban neighborhood. And context is everything. Context is everything in terms of loving your neighbor. And um, God put it on my heart to actually... You know, you live in the suburbs, and you don't pay any attention to the people around you. You go to work, you come home, you just go in your house, and you're thankful to be home, and you watch Netflix and all that good stuff, and you don't think at all about your neighbors. God put it in my heart to actually look out the window and see the people around us. And so we had this new neighbor who moved into our neighborhood. Liz had a heart to make cookies. It was Christmas time. Take some cookies to them. A couple of months later, I happened to notice in the parking lot, uh, in the driveway, the car wasn't there. And for a number of weeks, the car wasn't there. I see the mom walking with bags full of groceries, um, about six or eight bags of groceries. And I think, wow, okay, the car's gone. And she's having to struggle carrying groceries to her house. We go and buy groceries every Saturday. We'll invite her. Um, they've got some kids. My daughter, I talk to her. Would you mind watching the kids while we take the mom away? And no, it's all good. So my daughter and I go and knock on the door and say, hi, you know, we're your neighbor. And we just want to, we just noticed you walking across this, the, you know, the field to your home, carrying all these bags of groceries. We're going to the grocery store every Saturday. Um, my daughter will look after your, your kids. And she jumped on that. And she said, what, your, your daughter's willing to look after my kids? Actually, um, they're home alone every afternoon. And they're underage, um, but she works. And so she said, would you mind coming and watching my kids every day? Um, and so that started a relationship where, in a, you know, I don't know, maybe um, after inviting them over for dinner a number of times, we invite them to church. The mom meets the Holy Spirit on a good Friday She's weeping. Um, she either gives her life to Christ for the first time or rededicates her life. Um, that leads to, like, in another couple of years, uh, they have a flood in their basement. Um, she can't, they're going to have to move, um, and yet it just would not work logistically with the young kids getting bus rides to school, etc. We invite them into our home for six weeks. Uh, we have a spare bedroom. Um, a mom and three kids live in a spare bedroom in our living room, um, and we just developed this deep friendship. And when we left Ajax, um, I've heard that the mom is just passionate for Christ and, and, and serves in our church. So context is everything, you know? Like, you, you, you work with where you're at in terms of who are the people that God is bringing into your life. You know, now in Cornell, it's really different. Um, way more serious issues, and I, and I describe it for our team. It's a bit like uh, when someone has a rubber ball. I don't know if you remember. Uh, it's like a rubber ball made out of elastic bands, and there's one band that's sticking out, and so, you know, this is a presenting problem. They come to you, and I need help with this, and people have uh, severe addictions. They're impoverished. There's mental health issues, and so it's like decades of bad decisions um, are all wrapped up, and now they need help with this. And we ask God, God, just give us wisdom on how to do this. But I've learned two things, and I, I'm going to share my learnings with you, but one of them is we choose to enter into their life, and it is messy. But our model is Jesus. He left the beauty and the glory of heaven 
to enter the messiness of our earth and then the messiness of my unredeemed life. And if he was willing to enter the messiness of your life and my life, we're willing to enter the messiness of somebody else's life for the chance that he can be glorified. And so we enter the messiness, and much like the nine, you know, one has left the 99, and you've got one person in front of you, I can't solve all the addiction issues in our community. I can't solve all the poverty issues in our community, but I can love that one person right in front of me right now. I can do that. And, you know, with our First Nations, you know, the Native American, you would call them Native American community, so many issues, and issues with the church, and the church was part of the abuse system that the government put in place, and people ask us, you know, how do, how do the First Nations people respond to us as a church, knowing the history of abuse and violence and, and uh, just horrendous things that have been done to the First Nations population in Canada for hundreds of years, for a hundred years. I can't fix that, but I can love this one person in front of you. And that seems to open the doors. They don't look at us as a church, and they don't look, of, look at us as Christians. They look, as, they look at it as people who love them and care about them. At, uh, Maddie talked about it last night, and it was Keller who said that there's, the Greeks talked about two kinds of compassion that you have for people. Love of benevolence and love of attachment. The love of benevolence, we just had Thanksgiving in Canada. You can go to the grocery store, you can buy some groceries, and it gets donated, and that's kind, and that's charitable, but there is no relationship. There is no real investment in a person. Love of attachment is you make yourself vulnerable. You enter into their world, and you feel what they feel. You care, um, and I have no explanation as to how God does that, but when you enter in with your heart open and your willingness to, to ask questions, we had a, a friend of ours who uh, was on the streets of East Vancouver, um, alcoholic, and you guys know that when, you, when you're walking down the street and there's a homeless person who's panhandling, we actually don't want to look at them. We don't want to actually acknowledge them because we feel guilty, we don't know what to say, we don't know what to do, it's uncomfortable. He said to us, he didn't feel like a person. He actually felt invisible sitting on the sidewalk. And for us, when we started the bridge, meeting people at the bridge, the most important thing that we could do, yes, we serve coffee and yes, we serve food, but the most important thing that we could do was to sit down with a person and genuinely ask them, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? And is that scary? No, that, you know what? You can actually do that. How are you doing? What's going on? And actually care about what the answer is. And I might not be able to help, and I might not be able to do anything, but at least you want to hear what's happening. You show them the respect and love that every person deserves, every person who's made in the image of Christ. They deserve that. So we sit at the bridge and we ask questions and we talk and we listen with our hearts to what's going on. That's, that's one of the things that I've learned, that we can all do that. Yeah, and you have to have boundaries. You have to, like if you're going to do this, if you're going to venture out to love your neighbor, you have to have boundaries. 
because most of those folks, well, a lot of the folks that we're dealing with don't have boundaries. They've been traumatized, they've been abused, and they were shown no boundaries, and so we have, to have, we have to have boundaries when we're meeting with them. The last thing I would say that I've learned is that love costs. Love costs. It certainly costs Christ, but it's going to cost you if you're going to do this. Time, money, inconvenience. You know, no one's life, in terms of their rhythms, are going to match yours. That means it's going to be inconvenient to actually enter into somebody else's world. But you see Jesus doing that, stopping what he's doing, to talk to someone, knowing that whatever he was thinking he was going to do, it just got interrupted. He was willing to do that for us. As a result, we have no choice. You know, like, his love compels us. So there's this guy named Curtis. And uh, he's a First Nations, Native American, quote-unquote guy. An amazing artist. God has given them a gift to draw. Amazing First Nations art. He's been abused daily since he was a kid. And it's just traumatized him. And so he's drunk all the time. And I've had about eight conversations with him. And God just put him on my heart. And so he's got cancer. He's an alcoholic, hardcore alcoholic. He's got cancer. He's been spitting up blood. And, um, and when I found that out, I started talking to him. Every time I had the chance to say, man, you just need to live differently. Like you want to live and not die. Uh, like if you keep going down this road, it's not going to be good. You got to change. And so he started saying he wanted to go to a detox program and a, you know, alcohol treatment program. And so I arranged a, a detox program for him. And I'm going on Friday to pick him up. And I go to his apartment. He, and I find out that he hasn't been eating for a week. He's been drinking a 26er of vodka every single day instead. And he has no energy. He's weak. Um, he can barely walk. And I'm going, he can't go to detox. We're going to take him to the hospital. In, that, in the midst of that, while I'm waiting for him to get his stuff together, he's spitting up blood, and he wants a drink. And his partner is like, she's drunk, and she's sneaking a bottle uh, in front of me, but she's doing a poor job of it. And I'm just I'm watching her like sneak this bottle over, and he takes a swig, and he makes a joke about it. I take him to the hospital, I take him to Emerge, and we get him into Emerge, and I'm sitting beside him in Emerge, and the thought of Jonah chapter 4 comes to my head when Jonah is complaining, you know, God, you showed mercy to these people, like, God, what are you doing? And, and God responds, and he says, the great city of Nineveh, 150,000 souls, how could I not do this? They do not know their left hand from their right. They are so spiritually lost, so spiritually dead. They can't even know their left hand from the right, where they're going, where they're coming, and they're going, nothing. They, they are so lost. And that just drops into my heart. And I start bawling, sitting in there with this guy. He does not know his left hand from his right. He is spitting up blood, and he wants a drink. And so I wept for him. And uh, he eventually came out of the hospital. He went back to drinking. I got him up to detox again. And right now, he's scheduled for an alcohol treatment program. He's been sober. Um, and, he need, and he's scheduled to go October 31st uh, up north 
about six hours north of us in Dawson Creek to an alcohol treatment program. Praise God. Praise God. We're just going to, we're praying for him. We're loving on him. We're supporting him as much as possible. Okay. Ask questions, set boundaries, and just know that love's going to cost. How can I have more love for my neighbor? I mean, how do you do this? The answer is, it's the gospel. You know this. You guys know this. You know this, that it's the gospel that fuels everything that we do and everything that we say. It is the motivation, the the inspiration that we need to do anything that we have to do in church. It's the gospel. Yes, Jesus is the, that ultimate neighbor who shows us love and compassion and picks us up. But before that, he was first the guy on the road. He was the guy on the road. He was naked. He was naked on the cross for each and every one of us in a public space, publicly humiliated. Why? For you and for me. He was beaten. He was so badly beaten. He was unrecognizable as a man. Whipped 39 times. Beard pulled out. Didn't look like a man. Why did he do that? For you and for me. And he was dead. He was absolutely dead. Three days buried. And no one came to rescue him. In fact, the father turned away from him. I mean, just think about that for a second. The first time in all of eternity, Jesus was not in relationship to the Father. It must have been devastating. But why did he do it? He did it for you, and he did it for me. Can, do you see it? Do you see the love and compassion that God has shown us. Does that strike your heart? Does that move you? But that's not all. I mean, that's not, like, that would seem like that's enough. But that's not all that he's done. You were naked. I was naked. You are now robed in righteousness. You are justified. When the Father looks at you, he sees the beauty, the perfection, the, the holiness, the purity of Christ. You did nothing to deserve that. You did nothing to earn that. It is a gift. It's been given to you. And we sin every day. But we are robed in the beauty and the righteousness of Christ. What a gift. What a gift. And we were beaten. We carried the weight of the sin, the guilt and, and, and the shame of our sin. And we are healed physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You are now adopted into the kingdom. God is your father. What a privilege that we can call God our father because of what Christ has done. And you have stories of miracles in your life. For me, when I was called to Quenelle, 
I discovered that I had lymphoma. I had cold agglutin disease and lymphomatic lymphoma, lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. Three months before we're supposed to come to Cornell, I'm diagnosed with that. And it means that anytime the weather is less than 60 degrees, my immune system attacks my red blood cells, my hands, my ears, my cheeks, my nose, my feet, all turn purple. And, and my immune system, uh, my blood starts losing its red blood cells, and I'm fatigued and tired. God healed me of that. I took chemotherapy, and God has healed me of this. My cancer is in remission. I've been healed. And lastly, we were dead, but now we have life. We have abundant life. We have full life. We have vibrant life. But even more than that, we have been given eternal life. Like, just imagine you will be in heaven with the beauty and the glory of God face to face. That's what you've been given. That's the love and compassion that God has shown to you. You've been given it. I've been given it. Now, go and do likewise.